Hello there, cultists. We trust you well out there in the real world. If the opening music for this one didn't give it away, today our podcast journey for the next hour and change will be beginning where everything ends as we take a look at Disney's dark 1979 classic, The Black Hole. Now, as is customary, we'll be dealing in spoilers during the discussion. And while I think the uh, the moratorium on spoilers for this one ended a little while ago, if you're not familiar with the movie and don't want it ruined, then I urge you do yourself a favour, go and check it out and then come right back here to us. Now, before I go any further, I'd like to give a big thank you to Kenny Denton for allowing us the use of his Nostromo version of the titular Black Hole track. I, uh, I really do appreciate this, Kenny. Certainly brought back some memories for me and I hope for the audience now too. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And so on with today's show. And yes, we'll be going in, through and beyond on today's movie. But as usual, I won't be the sole human left on board commanding the ship. I'll be joined by our esteemed panel of not quite faceless humanoid guests. So let's meet them. First up, if I'm the demented madman running the show, then that makes her my Maximilian. She's big, she's red. It's Sandy. It's Sandy Million. How are you doing today? Great. <laughs> you're uh, you're becoming quite the regular guest host on the the cult episodes as of late. How are you finding it? Uh, very fun. You'd think I'd have an an opening quote, but if I'm your Maximilian, he actually said nothing throughout the whole thing, so I had nothing. Yeah, just just a bit <laughs> rebellious silently. Uh, so, are you ready to go? Blade spinning for this one? Yes, blade spinning. <laughs> Great stuff. Now, also joining us today is someone you last heard on our uh, inaugural Bookaroo Banzai episode, where he was extolling the virtues of this one behind the scenes. It's Nige. Welcome, fella. Hey, buddy. How are you doing? I'm all right. Yourself? Yeah, yeah. I'm steady with. Thank you. Looking forward to this. Nice. It's been a long time. Uh, how's it feel to be back? Oh, I'm, I'm genuinely looking forward to it. Can't wait, to be honest. Bit of a deep dive into this film. Great stuff. Because it's been such a while, uh, do you want to give those listening in a little refresher on, you know, what you're about? Anything about you yourself? Oh, I don't really know what this to say, to be honest. A bit of a, a geek, a bit of a nerd. Love my films far too much. Love my film scores equally. Uh, and I love talking about it and discussing it with people just as much. So, yeah, steady away 53-year-old that just enjoys his films too much. Well, you're among like-minded people here, mate. Yeah, I don't think there's such thing as too much. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, we've got uh, yet another first-timer making his appearance today on the Cult Classics podcast. We put out a call, and like the hero he is, he answered. It's Gavin. Welcome, man. Yes, thank you, man. Yes, uh, fresh fresh meat for the grinder. No, uh, put oh, yes. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry. There'll be no blood. How are you doing today? <laughs> Oh, we're doing well, thank you, man. Yeah, it's nice, nice warm day. Nice to be here. Nice to be able to uh, offer a little bit of conversation in the direction of this film, another another firm classic, and yes, another committed aficionado of films. So happy to be here. Fantastic. With it, uh, with it being your first time here, do you want to tell everyone out there a little bit about yourself as well? Oh well, there's not much to talk about with me either. Uh, a bit of a committed enthusiast for creativity. Uh, I tend to try and lean towards uh, graphic design or three uh, D modelling, anything like that. These are kind of things that tend to tend to pass me time. Uh, a little bit of creative writing as well. I'm hoping to hoping to get a screenplay written at some point. But uh, yeah, that's that's another another 
dark alley altogether. Um, <laughs> other than that, yeah, oh, right. I, I love my films, love my films, uh, and I've done for a long time, and I've, I've loved this one, uh, yeah, <laughs> ever since the beginning. So that marks me as as reasonably old as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, seeing as it's uh, your first appearance, I'm going to ask mm. you what we ask everyone here on Cult Classic sooner or later. Okay. Uh, it's just so the listeners and you know us here can get more of a handle on you. Uh, if I had to ask you your favourite all-time cult movie, what's your personal number one? Ooh, favourite all-time cult movie. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I've got to be honest. It's it's going to be this one. I think I genuinely do keep coming back to this this particular oh, nice. movie, which is what kind of got me enthused about the idea of, of taking part in in the review today. Sandy's now uh, probably thinking, "Oh shit." Yeah, I mean, uh, my earliest films that I can I can remember seeing that could be anything like a cult classic would be going back to the old Doug McClure's with Warlords of Atlantis. I remember seeing that multiple times at one of the cinemas in Sheffield, and that that was where my cinema viewing started. Uh, But the main main feature before this one would have been Superman. Uh, in the end of 1978 and then yeah there was a bit of a gap in in cinema and i didn't do anything until this little beauty arrived on uh, national release in in march 1980 i believe it was and I, th- yeah. I think it was at the back end of that when i saw it so it was must have been literally just coming up to up to the last uh last sort of week of showing and I pestered my dad to take me to go and see it for reasons which I've completely lost. But uh, <laughs> my God, I'm glad he did. <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, back when we first started the cult classics, we were very mm. much uh, finding our feet. So it wasn't a question we asked back then. But now he's returned. This seems like the perfect time. So come over, coming over to you with the same question, Nigel. Favourite all-time personal cult classic? I think for me... <clears throat> I think it's probably it's probably Carpenter's the thing. It's the one that I just every time I watch it, I'm kind of blown away. I'm gripped. I've seen it so many times, and yet I can still watch it, listen to it, and just I'm just in there 100 percent every time I watch it. I don't know if it's a cult classic now because it just seems to be as popular as ever, um, but it's it's one that just is such a great repeat viewing time yeah. for me. I still love anything. Like Gavin just said, Wars of Atlantis, Land at Time, Forgot, anything like that. I'm all over those sort of films. I absolutely love them. Uh, I've been jumping into a few different films like, well, there's so many great films that Arrow were releasing of late um, that just make great watching. So I'm still kind of picking up and learning new cult titles that I haven't seen. I actually saw a, a film called Vanishing Point the other week for the first time, which is a real different sort of film, more like a road movie, uh, yeah. if any of you have seen that. But that, yeah. I absolutely loved it. Very different to what I normally watch, but that uh, that really worked for me. I'll have to check that one out. Who's in it? Oh, God. Do you know what? I've no idea right now. It's literally <laughs> a guy delivering a car. Oh. And it's almost like, if you remember watching sort of like the new Mad Max movie, where it's basically they go there and they come back. Well, it's, this is kind of the same where this guy is delivering this car across America. And for some reason, various people then try and stop him. And it's the most 
strange film, but it, it looks great at times. Um, and it's it's just really engrossing. I found it a real ethereal experience, just sat there, just taking it in. And while not a great deal happens, I just couldn't stop watching it. Cool. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, it's worth a look. Nice. Sorry, I am just lucky. Did uh, Cleveland Little was in it? Yes, that rings a bell. Uh, who, of course, uh, uh, if you know Blazing Saddles, I believe that was yeah. <laughs> the sheriff of Rock Ridge, wasn't it? Oh, right. He's a DJ. <laughs> this man plays a blind DJ, uh, wow. and he's he's great. It's not a performance you expect from it. It's really, really good. It's quite brutal at times. The film it's a little bit harsh, right. but right. it's. It's a very different sort of film. There's nothing sci-fi horror about it, yeah. but I just couldn't stop watching it. It's, nice. it's, it's I, I would recommend checking it out anyway. Nice one. Nice one. Right. So, uh, yeah, we'll get back to the movie at hand, which, of course, today is The Black Hole. Uh, it originally began life in February 74 as an Irwin Allen-style disaster movie in space called Space Station One from writers Bob Barbash and Richard Landau. The Black Hole then went through years of development and numerous iterations with a variety of different creatives. However, as the disaster movie trend waned, the script took a different direction with the final product described as being more akin to 20,000 leagues under the sea in space. Now, with a production budget of $26 million, including marketing, it was, at the time, the most expensive picture ever produced by Disney. It was also the first Disney production to receive a PG rating and set a tone that many later productions would follow, eventually leading to the creation of Touchstone Pictures in order to showcase movies too adult-oriented for the Disney uh, Buena Vista label. Though uh, nowadays the title is obviously Disney's The Black Hole. Uh, the Black Hole was also one of the last mainstream Hollywood films to feature an overture at the beginning of the movie. It was released uh, officially on December 1879 in the UK and on December 21st, 1979 in the United States. It received mixed reviews from film critics, but despite this, had a record opening weekend for Disney and eventually grossed $35 million in uh, US territory alone. It was also nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Cinematography and Best Visual Effects. Uh, until The Lone Ranger came along, many considered this film to be Disney's biggest flop and a symbol of everything wrong with uh, Ron Miller's leadership of the company at the time, complete with countless jokes about the company's money being tossed into the eponymous black hole. It did earn a profit, albeit slight for the company, however, and while not many, uh, very many people regard the film of Dis uh, as one of Disney's finer moments, it is considered a science fiction classic often cited along Blade Runner and Disney's later Tron as examples of films that failed upon first release only to be critically reappraised and become a cult favourite. And The Black Hole is currently available to stream on Disney+, Plus, as well as being available on physical media on DVD, as well as Blu-ray, but only if you're part of the Disney exclusive movie club or get it from a scalper on eBay. So, you know, don't get me started on that crap. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I've got to ask you all. I I do remember going to see this one with my parents, and though I can't remember the details, I do remember loving it, but being scared senseless by the end. I was very young at that point, so uh, my child mind was blown by the last few minutes, but I do remember telling myself repeatedly that the planet they were making their way towards at the end was Earth, if only so I could sleep at night. Uh, 
I remember us hiring it on video not long after it came out and then recording it from the TV when it was on and it was another one of those that was on constant rotation in our house. I I loved it. So how about you guys? And I'll come to you first, Sandy. I um, never saw this when I was younger, surprisingly. Somehow missed it. The first I remember is uh, Superman and... Um, Return of the Jedi, those are like the first two kind of sci-fi movies I saw. And then of course, you know, whatever came to TV and, and whatever we rented somehow never came across this until maybe about a year ago, I saw it on, on Disney. Whenever it was, I think it was when it was uh, newly added or something, it came up and I checked it out. And um, I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was pretty forward for the time as far as, you know, the idea of a black hole. Um, but that's really my first my first interaction with this movie. Cool. And uh, and you, Gavin, you mentioned you went to the uh, the cinema to see this one. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, the earliest memory I can I can pull of this was um, back in the day. We used to have a thing that used to get put on BBC uh, on uh, what was it BBC? I think it was the BBC. They used to have uh, Disney Time. Uh, whenever we got round to either Easter or Christmas, any any of these sort of official holidays, kept getting this show coming on, and it would come on for half an hour. It'd be like a little bit of a filler, a little bit the way that it, they did with the Looney Tunes cartoons. Um, and I can remember the Christmas edition in '79. Uh, it was uh, Paul Daniels, magician Paul Daniels, that was uh, hosting the show, and it was just oh, on there. Magic. Yes, the one, yeah. It, it was just on in the background. Uh, and it just started, obviously, it was the, their opportunity to get everybody into the cinema. So they were talking about it uh, at the end of that. And they showed the uh, eponymous clip with the meteor shower and that sort of caught my attention. It was like, oh, what's this? And and that got me attention and I loved it. And I thought, that looked good. And then, you know, as, as kids' minds do, they just sort of wander off and that was it. And I never thought anything more about it. Uh, and then I was looking over my dad's shoulder when he was looking at the newspaper, uh, and they got a poster, the the, uh, the the theatrical poster printed in in the newspaper. And I was looking at it, and just thinking, I wonder if I could talk my dad into taking me to go to the cinema. I just fancied going to the cinema. That was all it was. And uh, I said, Oh, Dad, I wouldn't mind going to see that today. Would you would you be all right with that? And he was like, well, yeah, yeah, if you want to go to the cinema. So yeah, uh, we went. It was showing at the Gaumont. Uh but it was good. It was good. It was amazing. We went to went to see it. I was looking at the uh, the poster when we were stood outside thinking, oh what am I getting myself into here? But I remembered the stuff from Christmas and thought, oh okay, well we'll have a look at this. We'll see how it goes. Uh, and I to this day I I really wish I'd taken the time to pick up the uh the lobby posters and bits and things that they always used to have in the cinema. I could have had an absolute plethora of that stuff all piled up in the corner of the bedroom. <laughs> if, I, if only I'd thought about it at the time. Uh, but yeah, we went to see it and it was absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. I was absolutely drawn in by by the uh, the opening sequence. I'd, uh, I'd never experienced an overture before, so that was that was interesting to to have that experience of you know with it being. Dad and Star Trek being the last ones, I think, at the time. Yeah. Had, had anything like that. Um, yeah. And it, again, you know, as as with yourself, man, it was a case of 
being dragged through this whole thing where it became a, a sort of a wide-eyed adventure that then became a bit of a, a mystery and then I started getting my first ever taste of dark sort of gothic horror and yeah I was absolutely <laughs> petrified and feeling quite ill by the end of it with you ever since yeah, just just the effect that it had on me for for some strange reason, it must have just clicked with me. Everything was just aligned at the right time, and I yeah. I, I just absolutely soaked it up. It was it was kind of I don't know. I guess up up until that time, I'd only really had sort of sci-fi experiences with films like Forbidden Planet and things like that. You know, a lot of the older yeah. older sort of sci-fi stuff like that, and I think the black hole tended to sort of hark from that sort of creative arena but it, it obviously brought much more substantial special effects to 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 the fore uh, and had a had a kind of a an edge that was just realistic enough for the eight-year-old me to be absolutely petrified of it <laughs> fantastic <laughs> so and yeah uh, that, that was that was my experience of the black hole and yeah i've never been the same since it's true <laughs> nice one and what about you Nigel? Oh, my <clears throat> my memories of seeing this for the first time are a little bit kind of weird. I I never got chance to see this at the cinema, uh, and I, I happened to be at a friend's house who had this on video, and the first time I saw this, I was sat in your mum and dad's living room. <laughs> That was the first time I'd ever seen it. Sat there watching it on VHS in your house. I'm sure it was. I, th um, I think back then, mate, it might have been the, the old Betamax. The Betamax. Yeah, yeah, it should have been, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. That's, that was my very first memory of watching it. And I remember seeing the main titles, those vector graphics, being absolutely blown away mm. by, oh, my God, what are we watching here? Um absolutely enthralled up to the point where they kind of headed through the black hole and then right can we just maybe switch that off and go back to the start again i had no idea what i'm even watching anymore and then i just it just lost me i had no idea what was going off and i just wanted to restart it and watch those opening titles again and start from there I remember watching it a few times uh, with you. Always enjoyed up to that point. It wasn't until I think many years later that I, I kind of quite got into the the last, I guess, the last quarter of the film where they head through the black hole itself. Um, but yeah, I uh, it, it always stuck with me. Um, there's a lot. I think there's a lot to talk about with this one. Uh, yeah, a lot of positives. I'm sure we'll get into. But yeah, the first, when I remember first watching it, I could watch three quarters of it, love it, and then, nah, that's, I no, I can't compute what's going on. It was yeah. too much for me at the time when I was a kid. But I have very, very fond memories of watching this uh, in your living room. <laughs> right first, sorry. Awesome. Well, I've made an impression on you then. Uh, I, I want to ask all of you, how, you know, it's, how do you feel it reconciled with your memories of Disney from around that time? Oh, back in that time, I can remember uh, the only sort of experiences of Disney films that I had at that time must have been something like I, th I seem to remember renting the cat from outer space, and oh, getting man. getting taste of the, of the love bug. 
um, little bits and things like that, and that obviously you know be Disney films in the background at seasonal times. But yeah, it was quite quite com- dear, no, completely different to anything that I kind of expected from from Disney. Really, yeah. that was great. And what about you, Nigel? I mean, did you have much experience with Disney prior to this one? Not a massive amount, but the more I sort of watch it, to me, it's just, it's it's not a Disney movie. It feels like an early 70s science fiction movie. It's dark, slow, quite serious. It It has its moments of action, but in general, it's a very quiet film. It's a film that you have to sit and you watch and you listen real carefully. Um, and it doesn't feel for me like a Disney movie at all. And I guess part of me is really glad about that. I love that it's so different. It's I, I can now watch it as an adult and still absolutely love it. Whereas I can't yeah. necessarily do the same with some of the old Disney movies. I can appreciate them, but I can't watch them with a certain love and joy. Whereas this, I, I absolutely find it fascinating even to this day. Uh, but it's yeah, it to me it doesn't feel in any way, shape, or form like a Disney film. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that to you, Sandy, because you came to this one quite late. So obviously, you know, it was on Disney Plus when you saw it. But would you have pegged it as as your typical Disney movie when you first watched it? Not at all. It doesn't reconcile at all with what I envisioned Disney to be. And it's not the sci-fi element. It is the darkness because. They did sci-fi. The earliest one I remember being Flight of the Navigator, which I loved. But um, uh, yeah, this has a totally different feel, uh, even with the robots. Before we get to the actual discussion, we'll take our customer look behind the scenes. And as I've mentioned, this one's been a long time coming. So I've tried to find some little snippets that you guys may or may not know, although I, I very much doubt the Gavin's not going to know any of this. Having said that, <laughs> as usual, I'm going to give a uh, give a spoiler warning to the, to those obsessively familiar with the movie. You may want to head uh, want to skip ahead a couple of minutes to avoid being bored by something you already know. <laughs> now, in casting Reinhardt, Gary Nelson was determined to cast Maximilian Schell, and on request of the actor, flew out to Vienna, where Schell was directing. Uh, for a face-to-face meeting. Upon arriving, however, Shell told Nelson that he would be better off with the actor Jason Robards instead. Stanley Kubrick had just told him of this miniseries he'd seen with Robards, explained Nelson. Shell said, by the way, have you seen it? It's called Washington Behind Closed Doors. I thought he was jerking me off, said Nelson. I said, yes, I not only saw it, but I directed it. And his face was the most honest shock I've seen on a person. You couldn't direct him any better. And he grabbed me, threw his arms around me, gave me a great big fucking kiss on the mouth and said, I will do your movie. And that was it. Now, while most of the rest of the casting went without incident, for the most part, it was very different for the role of Kate McRae. Nelson initially wanted a pre-alien Sigourney Weaver. But the head of the casting department countered, oh my God, with a name like Sigourney Weaver, we do not want her. Stunning foresight there, ladies and gentlemen. So... They ended up turning to Summer of 42 star Jennifer O'Neill, but her signature long hair was a problem. After an initial screen test, the director felt that O'Neill's hair would be a problem and requested that she cut it. After a little deliberation, not to mention a back and forth with Nelson, O'Neill agreed, bringing her own stylist, Vidal Sassoon, to the studio. According to Nelson, 
They went up to her dressing room and started cutting her hair one inch at a time and having a glass of wine, then cutting another inch and having another glass of wine. And by the time they were finished, the hair was pretty short and she was more than a little worse for wear. I'm paraphrasing here. After the disastrous haircut session, Nelson recalls she got in her car to drive home. Remember, it was the 70s. And she got into an accident on Sunset Boulevard and ended up... Oh, no. So we had to recast, and we cast Yvette Mimia the next day. So all that trauma and everything, getting a haircut, was for naught. It was kind of a shame. Mimia, for her part, had to undergo the same treatment, only, you know, maybe without the wine. Originally, Vincent and Bob's eyes were going to be computer screens that could display fully animated expressions. However, they failed to work during the first day of shooting, and the crew had to make a hasty last-minute adjustment by literally gluing back buttons onto the robot's faces. The name of Dr. Reinhardt's ship is the Cygnus, obviously. The first theoretical black hole was discovered in the constellation Cygnus, hence the name. The actual black hole looks nothing like uh, modern artists' conceptualizations of their appearance, such as the one seen in Interstellar. Because ironically, the first simulation of the actual look of one surrounded by an accretion disk came out in the same year this movie was released. John Hughes of Tower Films created the green grid sequence that appears in the opening titles. It was the longest computer graphic sequence ever to appear in a film at this point. And because of the tone of the movie and its use of the words hell and damn and its violent scenes, this was, you know, as we've said before, the first PG-rated Disney movie ever. And the film saw a lot of time merchandise, including colouring books, transfer sets, remember those old people? And uh, action figures. <laughs> yeah, WH Smith visit. It didn't sell well. Uh, as a result, vintage toys from the film are now highly sought after and often sell for huge amounts of money. And don't I bloody know it. Uh, one bit of proposed merchandise was a record containing the film's soundtrack. The twist was that it would be made of clear, hollowed-out vinyl, which would be filled with different coloured oils that would produce a constantly changing pattern as the record spun around on the turntable. Disney was promptly told that such a product would be very prone to leaking and the idea was scrapped. And liquid-filled records eventually ended up becoming a reality when vinyl became popular again in 2007. Now, sci-fi writer Harlan Ellison was brought into work as a consultant for this film, but was fired before he made it through his first day. Allegedly, this was due to him spinning a joke about doing, by his own claim, a Disney porn film while having lunch in the cafeteria, going so far as to act out parts of it to his table mates, completely unaware that there were Disney executives seated at the table behind him. According to Anthony Perkins... None of the cast were permitted to see the final 25 pages of the script. The actors were told it was due to the necessity to keep their reactions fresh. However, it turned out to be, well, more than a little white lie. The screenwriters had no idea how to end the film. There was no real ending. Anyone who read the last page saw, in essence, they go through the black hole. That was it. They enter the black hole. End of movie, admitted Nelson. We never had an ending for it. I didn't like the ending. Nobody liked the ending. We just kept shooting, hoping that it would come up with one. We had 125 or 130 days of shooting to think about it. So it wasn't like we actually had to come up with an idea tomorrow. We filmed for quite a long time before we actually did come up with it. I pitched ideas to Peter and he would draw up visuals of what it might be like to go through the black hole, said Nelson. 
and I had thought about one of the shots or sequences of passing through the painting on the Sistine Chapel of God reaching out to Adam with the, you know, the one with the fingers almost touching, the Michelangelo rendering. The production got permission from the Vatican to film at the iconic location and the crew traveled to Rome to shoot the famed ceiling fresco and incorporate it into the finale. One of the shots was on the track and was very precise and it goes into Yvette's eye, explained actor Joseph Bottoms. And they were going to start in the eye of Adam and pull back and there was going to be this shot of the Sistine Chapel and the creation of Adam. But Disney ultimately got cold feet. We were getting very close to putting the picture to bed, recalled Nelson. Ron Miller and the heads of the studio didn't want anything to be that religious, so it ended up on the cutting room floor. As a result, the entire ending sequence that was thought up on the fly at the last second and the cast had no idea what it was until they saw the film in theatres. So, I'm guessing at least one of you knew most of that already, looking at you, Gavin. But what about... What about the rest of you? Any little tips there you're unaware of or a shock to learn? I think I'm fairly aware of <clears throat> most of that. I knew one of the potential endings was where they all kind of become ethereal beings. I'd love to have seen a, a different ending in which they appear somewhere very different and there's a potential of a follow-up film to that. Can you get back through? That's I'd love to have seen that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the the uh, there were Whitman produced a, a comic series, mm. uh, which actually went beyond beyond the end of the film, and they ended up in this this sort of alternate reality with a, another Reinhardt and another Cygnus and another Maximilian, and a, a whole new sort of realm. Yeah, they they uh, entered the parallel universe, didn't they, with uh, doppelgangers? Yeah, yeah. That was that was what I remember. I see. I seem to remember getting that. When I was on holiday and reading it, yeah, it was all it, quite wild. Yeah, it it didn't last very long. It, it, it apparently no. the comic concluded with a cliffhanger that and with, that said, "Trapped in another universe with no way to get home, Dan, Charlie, Kate, and Vincent await their fate beyond the black hole." Join us next time in issue number five. Now the intention was to develop an ongoing series, mm-hmm. but issue five never actually came to be in English speaking countries. There was a number five and six in Spanish-speaking countries, but uh, from what I can gather, it takes kind of a more lost-in-space approach, and, you know, it features shit like dinosaurs and stuff. And according to many fans, it's really quite childish, so it's not not really worth bothering with. But, I mean, even so, these comics are going for ridiculous prices on the collector's market. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Uh, so, as with our last episode, the uh, the Big Trouble in Little China one, while uh, researching, I unearthed a relatively recent article from 2019 in Hollywood Reporter discussing the production of the movie and its problems. It's talks, talking to director Gary Nelson, as well as cast members uh, Robert Forster, RIP, and Joseph Bottoms. It's a fascinating read, and some of what was discussed just now uh, and made it into today's, you know, behind the scenes. It's on there. So as with the aforementioned previous episode, I'll make sure the link is in the description for anyone out there who'd like to know more. And, uh, yeah. So, right, it's time for you mothers to get up, come on and get down with the Cygnus. Uh, As always, I'm going to assume we've all watched this again recently, so it's fresh in our minds. So, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you, do you think it holds up? And I'll go to you first, Sandy. (laughs) I, uh, 
visual effects wise, it really doesn't hold up, though it was impressive for the time. Um, I think anybody coming into it new as I did, it's definitely super dated as, as a film. Although it was for the time, uh, quite ahead of its time and, and groundbreaking. I remember reading that they um, came up with some new camera systems or kind of reinvented their own camera systems to film this. But uh, I don't really think I could say it held up uh, as far as today's standards. Yeah, I, I don't know. if the, I remember watching it a couple of years ago and it was an HD version and it it, it looked really nice, but this time, for some reason, the the one that was on Disney Plus, it the the special effects look very dodgy. So I, I can see your point with regards to that. What about uh, what about you, Nige? I'm a, I disagree a little bit. I think there are certain aspects of it that that stand up really well, and I think as a film, bearing in mind it's many years old, I think it's still very watchable for the majority of it. And for me, some of the effects, I <clears throat> I watched it um, only in the last week. Uh, and some of the shots and cinematography where you're looking at the um, sort of main crew area of the Cygnus and you've got the planets kind of there with the robots or the, uh, the crew as they are working on them, I think are absolutely wonderful on the eye. Yeah, some of the, I guess, special effects are not great, but... It, for me personally, it doesn't detract from the film at all. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm used to watching rubber monsters and stuff like this, so I don't, I don't see special effects <clears throat> with any kind of. I'm, I'm less critical, I think, of special effects. I'll give them far more leniency than maybe they deserve. Yeah. What about you, Gav? You think it, it still holds up? Obviously, you know, you, it's got a special place in your heart. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, setting that aside and trying to be uh, objective about it, I mean, yeah, it, it definitely is is sort of a product of its time, I think, uh, as far as as far as effects are concerned. I think it was it was pretty brave of Disney to be diving into creating their own, their own camera effects system for it. Uh, as far as the effects side of it was concerned, because I believe they were they were wanting to get uh, industrial light and magic to be able to mm -hmm. do the effects mm -hmm. for it, but the system wasn't available at the time. I think it was tied up doing Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Uh, from what I remember Harrison Ellen Shaw talking about. So, yeah, they ended up having to develop this camera effects system now. I think because of the way it processed some of the some of the composites and what have you. I, th I think it it suffered a little bit in in that respect. Uh, and I think if they actually went back and gave a proper remaster uh, to the material, you know, going back to the original negatives and re recompositing, I think it, it would probably end up looking slightly different uh, to how it how it still obviously does in its in its in its native form. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that I mean, so, so the, the effects can be a little bit variable here and there. I think I think they've got some some that are really absolutely spot on, uh, and and then occasionally it can it can just slip when they start trying to get perhaps a little bit too ambitious for what they could do. I think they were they were really trying to push push what they could get out of it, you know. So I mean, you you get sort of I think that I think probably one of the scenes that is kind of most critical. Uh, across across a broader sort of scope would be 
the ride in the air car when the, when the meteorites assault the Cygnus. I, th I, th I think people could have a little bit of a trouble with that particular effect, what they were trying to pull off there. But then you go to something like the actual meteor scene where they're, they're crossing the bridge and that looks as flawless. Now that as was awesome, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, and the, and the flybys of the Cygnus when it is lighting up, you know, when the when the the first exploring and whatever. I think those. I mean, the, the, to be fair, the model that they actually made was nothing short of stunning. I don't think. Oh, yeah, I think it's a real shame that they didn't survive. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, because there was a lot of work went into those, and when you see the back, you know, the sort of um, background effect shots you know the production shots of that is that's uh, an absolutely beautiful model yeah uh, so you, you can see how they managed to get tight shots and, and it look look competent you know in the, in the way that they did and then you know of course they've got the inventiveness of creating the black hole itself which of course you know whilst isn't a sort of a, a spherical hole as we would understand it and as christopher nolan's given us with interstellar you know it's it's still a, a an insanely beautiful sort of you know creation i think so yeah, yeah. i mean we'll, we'll we'll stick with the the effects i mean i personally i love how the sickness looks i mean it's got it's got an eerie atmosphere it's covered i mean it's completely impractical although it supposedly it was supposed to be a generational ship but it's so different from other designs it's a unique ship, isn't it? I don't think yeah. not, there aren't many ships that sort of stand out as being relatively unique. I don't think in film history, you know, you've you've got you've got something like the Death Star that's obviously you know quite iconic in itself, and perhaps Discovery in two thousand and one is an iconic ship. But the, the Cygnus, there's there's nothing nothing else that really sort of quite touches that. I don't think. No. Well, do, while doing the research, I came across a quote from someone who said, basically said, the Cygnus is a sort of glass cathedral spaceship that runs on pure awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I, I can't fault that. And I mean, how it looks is amazing. From what I understand, it featured, you know, they featured more than 150 matte paintings, which was just an unbelievable amount for films in general. But for a Disney film, it was, it was just kind of unheard of and with regards to you know what you mentioned about the transport tube mm. i always get the feeling when i'm watching it and they're going through that sequence that had the film done a great deal better than it did i'm wondering if they were going to use that as a template for like a disney ride i believe they were going to be doing a ride weren't they i, 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 I seem too. to remember i think at, here in britain in alton towers we had a, a black hole ride i don't know if it was directly tied into the film I don't think it was. I think it was just kind of riding on the name at that point. It, yeah, it perhaps was. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't anything quite as as whirlwind as you'd perhaps imagine either. I don't think it was anything death defying. But yeah, um, yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't have surprised me if they were going to expand into something like that. You know, had it been a great deal sort of more successful, I guess. Yeah, but even now when I'm watching it, I'm thinking, oh, I'd love I'd love to go on that ride, even though the the damn thing doesn't exist. Oh yeah, well, I mean, I did, I, what one personal sort of little project that I did do was create uh, a CGI rendering of the the central corridor, um, yeah. and I've I've posted that on me on my YouTube channel. But that's that's an, an aside. But having done done that creation, I've I've been fascinated with the idea of creating a three D um, VR Cygnus experience. I thought that would be a 
a pretty cool thing which oh man you've got to do that a lot of fans would like well yeah i mean i've I've yet to sort of fully tinker tinker with vr or anything like that but i've certainly could manage to create the central corridor all right that that turned out very nice yeah cool nice and going back to what you said nigel it never gets to a point i don't think where it takes me out of the film uh they, they they are looking data, but as you mentioned, you know we've grown up with classic Doctor Who and stuff like that. So your imagination automatically patches over stuff like that for the most part. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't find even though I my opinion was that it didn't quite hold up to today. I didn't have much trouble with the special effects. In fact, there were a few things that actually impressed me, like uh, how they were floating about the spaceship in the beginning. Um, I don't know, it looked like more than strings or or something. I'm not really, I'm, I'm not even really sure how they did it, but I think it, it held, that part held up pretty well. And just, you know, a few other exterior shots of the ships. Uh, one thing I liked about the ship, it's, it's something that we um, all complain about uh, sci-fi, how it just seems, it doesn't, it forgets that it's in, you know, a multi-dimensional space and the Cygnus here it didn't seem to have a top or a bottom it it almost looked like uh uh, the bottom almost looked like a mirror image of the top so i thought that was was kind of cool and forward thinking of them yeah well uh, which funny you mentioned about the uh the weightlessness on on board the palomino the entire thing was supposed to take place in a, a you know a weightless environment, but the technical difficulties uh, it prompted a rewrite. So uh, obviously, so now when it docks up to the Cygnus, you know they get gravity back, which is helpful. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think that's I think that's fair enough. Otherwise, it yeah. would be a terrible waste of all those bridges and things in the <laughs> Cygnus design one day. <laughs> it's Don't I mean this, there is so much waste wasted space in that ship, but it just looks amazing. I can't yeah. fault it. I, it's, it's just one of the iconic ships to me. Yeah, I'd be curious to know, as, as in the sort of lore of the whole thing, how many how many crew they actually lost in the situation. Because I mean, you know, perhaps perhaps the ship itself, you know, it's it's got that sort of very gothic sort of haunted house sort of hammer horror feel to it. But perhaps it was more populated back in the day, you know, when uh, before the mutiny. Yeah. I mean, it, it could have been covered in the uh, the Alan Dean Foster novelization. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you were referring to earlier, Nigel, where they went all ethereal, because in the end of that, they all combine into some kind of gestalt ethereal entity. Ah, okay, that yeah. was what I was thinking, yeah. Uh, but from what I can gather, uh, Alan Dean Foster, he, he got the script and filled in a lot of, you know, a lot of holes from uh you know so when people look at certain things in the the writing or the plotting of it and just just for an example i'll give because uh, i think i think you caught up on this sunday with the mccrazy sp with regards to uh vincent yeah i thought it was cool too that they introduced it early so it wasn't like so convenient that it got used later uh, but the lack of radio communication uh, was interesting yeah, well, with regards to the ESP in the novel, it's uh, it defines defines it, it uh, that Kate's got a wireless cybernetic interface, 
So it's not just, you know, or she's gifted and can communicate with with. Yeah, I, th I, th I think the whole ESP thing was kind of you know just a, a kind of a way of people, the meta a metaphorical way for people to be talking about it, wasn't it, in a, a sort of casual sense. And of course, as as we found out in in the story, Vincent was saying that they'd uh, engage this. ESP ability to communicate with robots and that they were actually literally throwing into black holes as a means to try and find out what was going on. Yeah. Inside there. They had the, the whole project black hole thing, which, you know, and, and Harry says, oh yeah, you know, it's sort of old his ancient history, you know, but it, it's interesting that another little sort of background thing in the lore of the world that, you know, that they would have this, this ESP technology being used in such a way, you know, that was, uh, well, I, mean, that, I feel sorry for the robots. <laughs> oh God, yeah. I mean, that brings us into you know we we we've naturally progressed on the special effects side of things into the 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 script and the plotting kind of things. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it over to I'm gonna throw it over to you, Nigel. You said you got a lot of notes, and what's your uh, what's your take on the on the writing of this thing? What notes have you got on that? I've I've just got that it's a that it's a very adult film for me uh there's an awful lot about it that is just not a kid's movie i um, i think from things like vincent's quotes are all very on the mark when he's saying them they're all relevant to that time they're all famous historical quotes from our history um i think the way uh durant's death when he gets cut apart by maximilian I think there is so much about it. There's a mature cast, no kids kind of running around, which just tends to drive me nuts nowadays. Um, <laughs> I, I just love that everything about it. it. I love that the script seems to be written in such a way that it assumes that kids are actually quite smart. Yeah. Kids watching this will still get it and they'll be able to come back to it with a slightly more grown mind and ask different questions and then more different questions. It's, I, I have so many positive things to say about the script. It's not, don't get me wrong, it's not the greatest script ever written and there are a few parts that you think, hmm, that's a bit dodgy. However, I love the fact that it's got this mature adult feel to it throughout and it doesn't really vary very much. Um, it's, it's a great script and it's got so many little quotes that I absolutely love. I think they're absolutely fantastic, but they never, they never kind of dumb it down. It doesn't come out with silly kind of sarcastic comments. It's always done in a way that you go, bloody hell, that's, that's a great line. Or that's a really smart thing to say. I, I love the script. I think it's fantastic. And it also, I, I guess, you know, even as a young kid, when you're watching it, where they are quoting, it's, kind of encourages you to read a little more yeah 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 there was, there was something unsaid to to the eight-year-old in me that was watching that there was there was definitely something sort of a duality with Reinhardt because he seemed like a really friendly sort of grandfatherly sort of character a, a real sort of a, a wiseish sort of oh you know this guy's been here and, and done it and has you know got the got the book and the ticket and what have you and he knows knows what he's doing and he's, he's been on the ragged edge of science but then yeah there's just something that becomes very very uncomfortable yeah is it is it k mccray where he speaks to and he says the eyes 
the eyes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when, he, when he's doing, oh, yeah, when he's seeing the uh, father. Yeah. yeah. I think there's an ambiguity to it, which you don't normally get along film with films like this. It's when you're watching Star Wars, there are certain points where you're hanging around with the heroes where you feel safe. Yeah. And it's the same when you're watching, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture. Hmm. You never quite get that feeling of security throughout this, even with the heroes, because you always think, that there's 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 a, another shoe to drop. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I could re I can remember thinking about the characters who was actually sort of latching onto. I mean, when you when you watch a film, you sort of build up an empathy with with any of the characters that you're kind of watching. And and for me, I was kind of latching, I was latching onto Pizer as a kind of a, a friendly sort of youthful character within within the cast, and he was he was kind of the lad that I was identifying with. And then Vincent for his, his sort of friendliness and, and willingness to sort of, you know, play a little bit sort of more light-hearted. You know, you could almost feel like he was a kind of trying to just ease the the, the, the crew a little bit, you know, and, and then his interaction with Bob and how everything just sort of started falling apart once we started learning what was going on. And that was when the kind of horror behind it all sort of started sinking in to me as a as an eight-year-old watching this and then it became very much a sort of a, a cut and clean sort of black and white sort of horror show <laughs> yeah I the sort of sickness turns out to be a kind of floating tomb doesn't it well yeah yeah, yeah that's it the, oh the funeral scene was absolutely remarkable for that mm, because uh, really? the, uh, the, you know the eight-year-old me is looking at it and thinking oh these are robots and then all of a sudden he's having to contend with the idea that there's something else going on and like I say you know now you'd, you'd twig it but the eight-year-old me was really finding it uh, as as a sort of a, an exploration you know and, and, and the discovery of what was going on and I was kind of you know having to wait on Bob's explanation of what was going on because I don't know perhaps a part of me didn't even think that Disney was going to go that dark no you know, it's something like that it, it's it, I, th I think this was pretty much my first horror movie because mm. i think a lot of the the things in it are more of the horror genre than they are of the sci-fi and especially a, a sci-fi adventure so you can go from this you know having a a, a good time at the shootout with uh, vincent bob and star and then <laughs> you know the the tone shift sometimes yeah it's just yeah. you know like when harry you know goes in and sees the hydroponics and he's trying to talk to the uh what he thinks at that point is an android. There's something very haunting. This it's it's very off kilter. Yeah, and, yeah. Where he, where he was just sort of sat looking at this thing and and talking and kind of reflected on the idea that it seemed a little bit too too human. And it, it would, you could almost think like he was looking, you know, the, this humanoid was looking out from the inside of that mask. God only knows what it was thinking. If it was thinking anything, you know what I mean? It's little things like that that you just sort of reflect on once you've once you've become familiar with it once you've had the experience it's uh, it's deep stuff you know for for a disney movie, i think you know. what helps it as well is the era that it came from because when you look at the 70s the sci-fi during the 70s was very hard hitting you know you've got things like silent green and planet of the apes and westworld and stuff like that so yeah. the it has similar kind of elements to that the things that you you know you have to think about and it deals with mortality and it deals what it what it is like to be human 
and then you it mixes it and to me it makes it does a really good job of it of mixing it with that space adventure that you saw in star wars yeah another film from that era that you like you say from the from the 70s another another film of that era that kind of put me in a similar sort of place was silent running I remember, oh, yeah. I remember watching that when I was a kid, and, and indeed the ships in that were almost Cygnus-like. It, it was yeah. quite interesting. Yeah. That that cut me up at the end for different reasons. Again, though, for for Disney to actually, you know, do something that would uh, would even align with something like Silent Running, or you know, is a is an interesting thing in itself. And and I think a lot of people, a lot of people gave the Black Hole a rough ride for. It's pacing, but to be perfectly honest, given that it's kind of its strength is really kind of coming from that gothic horror sort of angle. I I think the the quiet sort of you know moments that you got in in the film as as it progresses, I think that that actually paces the narrative really nicely. I love the fact that it's such a quiet film for large yeah. periods of time. Yeah, you're just watching people discover things, learning with the characters. It's, yeah, it's clearly, it's come out of a different period, but I think it's, its strength is there. The fact that it is, it takes itself quite seriously. Yeah, I get, I get the feeling that was inspired a lot by sort of the, the Hammer Horror sort of films. You know, that, yeah. sort, of, that sort of background of, of you know, where, where you would have the story. So there was somebody that actually did a, a comparison uh, I forget where it was. It was it was on a on a website. Someone had done a comparison between the black hole and the House of Usher. Oh wow! Uh, and they, they'd actually sort of drawn parallels with that, and that that being you know the the sort of notion in my mind that it, the, the 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 essence of the black hole came imaginatively, in, in narratively from something like the background of, of Forbidden Planet and, and those those kind of things. feels like it could have really rolled through uh, the sort of hammer horror sort of approach, you know, where, where you have your sort of, your dark sort of castle in the sort of the old, the original sort of Dracula, you know, where you, you get yeah. the castle and you get them rolling up to that and sort of settling in and it's all been a little bit disquieting. You know, they, 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 that's that's how the black hole fed to me when I when I was a kid. I'd I watched a fair number of these, I think, on TV up to that point. You know, and, and had sort of some introduction with the old Christopher Lee, uh, sort of Draculas and and the old sort of Hammer horrors. So then to come to something like this that was taking a similar sort of dark, disquieting sort of edge, and wrapping it up in a sci-fi wrapper. You know, the delivering it in a sort of a sci-fi serving it was just a really, really potent combination for me. I think you know, and I think that's that's why it still sort of carries that that essence with it. Yeah. You know, what about you, Sandy? Well, you've been you've been remarkably quiet these last few. Oh, not by choice. <laughs> I um I actually did um think the writing was pretty good. There wasn't a lot of um, exposition at all, really. It, they just jumped right into uh, giving you know some short demands and um, just talking about some things that they were coming across. But yeah, not a lot of exposition and. Um, I, I was just said that uh, the film takes itself very seriously, and I agree with that also. Uh, 
there was no cheesy dialogue at all, no cheesy moments. Uh, I found nothing like that in the writing. And regarding the pacing, I actually thought the pacing was pretty good too. Each scene served a purpose. We found out something new or, you know, as the crew was split up, you know, we were checking in with all the different characters. So I, I thought the pacing was pretty good. I, I do like the fact that they, uh, that they, they, they raised the possibility. I think it's over the dinner scene that it, it could be a wormhole rather than a, a black hole where they're discussing the Einstein Rosen bridge. Oh yeah. Mm. And I do like that. They kind of cover that. I mean, you know, you, you then getting into a thing is, you know, surely Reinhardt would know what is a black hole and what is potentially a wormhole. But I do like that. They, they do try and explain some of the, I mean, yes, the science isn't fantastic. And I know recently that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyne, uh, Tyson, ripped the scientific inaccuracy of this but i think with like a lot of these things if the story is good enough to cover it you can kind of accept it with with headcanon as, as to what's happening it's like the uh you know where the where they're escaping and, and and later on it they're on the outside what appears to be the outside of the ship and yeah. you know it, people instantly go for Especially, you know, the later audiences that, that didn't have this connection as watching it as a, a child, they instantly go for the plot holes. And I think it does it a bit of a disservice to some extent. Uh, yeah, yeah I, th I think I think the thing with the black holes, it's, it's, it, it, you've kind of got different films, haven't you? You've got, you've got films that you would sort of describe as science fiction. Uh, maybe hard science fiction, so you've got your sort of 2001s that will approach it like that. But I think the black hole falls into science fantasy more than science yeah. fiction, and I would, it, which I find ironic because I think I put that in the same category as Star Wars, which I would argue is is science fa uh, science fantasy rather than science fiction. Yeah, really. You know, I mean, the, the like you say, you know, sort of theoretical plot holes, notwithstanding, you know, I, I think. The black hole definitely goes more for the for the creative artistic side, uh, and I mean I know that recently in your your uh, podcast that you did talking about Flash Gordon, and there was a lot of conversation in that about how you might sort of have explainer science fiction sort of science fact and, and law that can kind of cover cover the bases where there are plot holes and things like that. I've always I've always felt for the sickness that so if you were going to have something like an Eiffel Tower in space, you would realistically want that to have some kind of a protective atmosphere around it. Yeah. Because while space is empty, you know, <laughs> something like that could get easily punctured, as we saw. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what my head cannon does. Yeah. So when, they, when they are climbing, I mean, I mean, apparently they were they were going to be using uh, spacesuits. Yes. But the, the cast just completely disliked their design and there wasn't enough time to redesign them so they just thought sod it we'll shoot it without but yeah i'd love, to, I'd love to know what was so bad about them. Did, I mean, I've never, seen anything. never seen them so yeah so you yeah. know i can kind of uh, i mean i don't know how somebody that comes to the film later like you sandy but to my i've always said that if you if you're having to resort to head cannon there's a failure somewhere along the line yeah. so while i would admit that there is a flaw in the scripts with regards to that, whether it comes when it comes to my head cannon, 
you know, obviously there's that stable field that's keeping the, the Cygnus from going into the black hole. As you said, Gav, I, I just see it as this kind of protective atmosphere. So that's how I explain it away. That was actually my thought as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so the anti-gravity anti well, the the field. Yeah, the, I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, the whole thing, yeah, you know, it's, it's a bit of a problem like that. But I think, you know, you've got the the essence of what you've got going on at this particular point is very much right down, nailing down into into the disaster side of the movie, you know, of the, of the whole original concept, I think. So, you know, it's, it's basically a kind of a, a panic rush to the death, isn't it? Just to try and get away from all of this. And I think that's... I think that's kind of like where you, where you have to where you have to put your head when it get when it gets to that. You know, they've got the desperate run against Maximilian and Vincent's battle there, and it's all all kind of coming to a head where they're basically just trying to get away and uh, off the damn thing. I mean, another one of the things that cropped up uh, during this watching is when they're talking about the uh, the faceless androids, mm. and you know, and they say, "Oh, you can't program emotion." But ironically enough, the robots on the Cygnus are the most emotional characters. <laughs> there, you know, you've got Star being smug and then blowing a fuse in frustration. And, you know, Maximilian's got this kind of superiority about him. Uh, yeah, he's got a big ego, anti Max. <laughs> yeah. He's a real problem. I, th I think yeah. he became a problem for Reinhardt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a few scenes there where he's, you know, actively deciding whether or not to follow his orders. Yeah. And, yeah. and then in the end, you know, he's thinking, did he abandon him to his death on purpose? Yeah, yeah. The Max Max was a real quandary for me as a kid. I wasn't, I wasn't happy about him at all. <laughs> no. So, but I, I mean, yeah, I do think it does have that plot holes, but I think people that come to the movie later might actively go searching for these these plot holes. I don't know if you've experienced anybody that's that's watched it at a later date. I mean, weirdly enough, Sandy seems to be the the one that yeah. that hasn't pulled Offers, it to bit. I offer that perspective, yes. <laughs> But I remember you saying at the time, I could go one or two ways with this, either the, you know, normal or mystery science theatre. So what would you, you know, I mean, when you watched it, were you cognizant of of what you would term any glaring plot holes that you would were enough to put you off the project? Um, no, not really. I think my first time watching it um, was when it, seemed more campy and um, I wasn't as quite into it. I thought there was a plot hole of, um, you know, if she could communicate with Vincent, why, why couldn't she sense or communicate all of the other people on the ship? But that was, you know, explained um, something you said earlier, there was some kind of interface, but that I, I if there was ever mentioned, I, I missed it. I don't think it was mentioned in in the film. And again, I think it's it was Alan Dean Foster who were like trying to patch what he would term holes in the script. Uh, but I just it, it's a it's a strange one because I'm coming at it from the perspective of someone that saw it when they were what five years old. Mm -hmm. So when someone says oh, I'm going to communicate with a robot via ESP, I just take that on board and run yeah. with it. Yeah. So I, I was just wondering what perspective, you know, you had coming to it to it later, 
and with with that not being in the actual script if if when you first saw it you just thought oh that's a bit ludicrous nothing really i had some problems with some of the editing so i wouldn't really call that a plot hole i don't know if you want to discuss that now yeah we'll go on to the direction slash editing so yeah go for it sandy uh, the part that was glaring to me is, um, you know, towards the end where they're fighting their way back off the ship and um, they go down that tunnel, yet they're fighting in environments that were clearly on the other side of the tunnel, like the, um, um, the plant, uh, the agricultural area, um, you know, that they were exploring when they were all on one side of the ship came up after they traveled back through the tunnel on the other side of the ship where they were fighting. So uh, just some some scenes like that that I felt were were out of place, shot differently maybe and, and sewn back together um, where that that was a little bit bothersome to me. That's fair enough. Uh, what did you think on, on, the, uh, on the direction as a whole? The direction as a whole I thought was pretty good. Um, like you mentioned, I mean, it's not easy to bring um, character out of something that's nonverbal. And so I thought that they did that pretty well. And like you mentioned, um, they were the most charismatic things. Everybody else seemed kind of stoic, but you would expect that, especially from Robert Forster, you would expect that from, you know, scientists or people in space travel, unlike nowadays, Sometimes we see a crew and they just seem so dang silly. It's like you wonder how they even made it through any sort of space program or got into space, right? Yeah. yeah. It is tame by today's standards and even by late 1970s standards. But when Alex unmasks, you know, what he thinks the robot and reveals that groaning zombie-like face, mm. it, it had no precedent in a Disney live action. And to yeah. me, it's <laughs> disturbing. Yeah, that that was the black holes version of the chest burster, wasn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's when it turned into horror, right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does have that element of 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 that kind of body horror, you know, off kind of off screen thing seen in the seventies. Like I've mentioned, the aforementioned Silent Green, but you know, while it was a common practice in hard sci fi movies at the time, you'd never expect it to rear its head in a Disney movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that whole that whole sequence just there, right there, was was the kind of the <laughs> showing the adult side of it, wasn't it? I mean, I mean, you know, Durant's demise as well at the hands of Maximilian. I mean, I think even in the novelization and certainly in the in the, in the character uh, in the uh, comic books, uh, it was just simply a case of Reinhardt shooting him. I think I, I think Reinhardt shot yeah. him in the in the comic. And I think Maximilian might have shot him with a laser in, in the novelization. Uh, I mean, even, even Alan Dean Foster didn't go so far as to have him eviscerated. No, I, I, I honestly hated that scene. And I had a conversation <clears throat> with the, you know, the guy that runs these podcasts, Mike Sandy's, right. you know, good, good, good friends with him. And mm. he was asking about that scene the other day. And I would, I would just say, I think it's just a kind of masterstroke. In editing, well, yeah. I mean, some of the editing could be off, but with that, I think it's done really well. Yeah, you don't see any blood, but you're not going to in a Disney film. No. But they do that old Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing, whereas they cut away and then your imagination kicks in. 
And that just makes it so much more terrifying to me, and especially, you know, as a child. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a, a remarkable moment for a Disney movie. It definitely earned its A, a certificate with that one, I think, didn't it? Yeah. Really, it's impression. I think it's. I think that particular bit. I think is <clears throat> is absolutely horrific, but most importantly, it's memorable. Oh yeah. Oh and yeah. That's, and yeah. that's one of the key points. People go, "Oh my days!" I, yeah. Did I just see that? And you can't believe what you've just seen, but you don't forget it. And yeah, that's really, yeah. really important. Yeah. I think the. I think even the way, uh, Lado acts it out. Uh, Axtrans Duran's death. Mm. It's it's great, and you're thinking, "Oh my days!" And like you say, you can't see the blood. You're just imagining what is going off. Yeah, you, it, it, it cemented the horror of Maximilian as well, really, didn't it? Because I mean, you, all the time throughout the film, you'd had this horrible sort of sense that Max was just a bit too big, a little bit too. There was just something. You know that wasn't quite. No confusion after that bit, was there? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and then you and then you get that, and it's like, right, yeah, yeah Max has puts his his put his hands up quite literally, you know. It's <laughs> like, no, no mistaking this robot is not good. <laughs> there were times even uh, towards the middle where Reinhardt looked like he was scared of him himself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I, I remember that as a kid, just wondering when he when he was whispering to McRae, you know, protect me from Maximilian. I wondered at the time, my mind was trying to decide whether whether he was saying that just to try and get her on side, or whether he was really saying that because he's just never seen Max do anything like that, you know. And obviously, I would imagine Max hasn't had much of an opportunity to do something like that, pending the the notion that Max was around for the mutiny in the original. The original overtake of the of the sickness. I don't know. I don't know if there was anything in the law about whether Max had been made afterwards or not, or, or whether he was there as part of Reinhardt's defense against the mutiny. But I get the feeling he'd never seen Max do anything like that. Things <laughs> like those lines. Don't you think it's great? Because whenever I watch that and I, I hear him utter that line, mm. I don't know whether he's saying it because. Is actually generally fearful, or mm. if he's just trying to fool those guys. Because later on in the film, you think, no, 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 he, he knows exactly what he's doing. Mm. But it's it is a little bit ambiguous. You're never quite sure. And there's a number of things in the film where it's not black and white. You've got to just think about it and go. Actually, it could go this way. It could go that way. Yeah. You're never quite sure. And I like the fact that it it keeps you on your toes like that. It's not yeah. so obvious. It makes you think. Yeah, yeah. There were definitely, there were definitely several philosophical lines of thought in the movie that I I did like. I, I meant to bring that up during the writing and forgot um, that several philosophical lines of dialogue that that were really good. But regarding what we were talking about, um, yeah, the first time when he does say, you know, protect me from Maximilian, but then um, in the very literally next uh, flashback to him, he's acting normal again. He doesn't seem scared at all. Uh, so that's what makes me maybe lean a little bit towards what, what you thought about uh, just trying to uh, get her on his side. That was interesting. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think yeah. about that. And then when you see him truly horrified is after he um, actually kills uh, Alex. I think yeah. it was. And yeah. that's when he really seemed to uh, realize that he was no longer in control. 
Yeah. 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 From from that point, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's not really much interaction in the film between him and Max after that sort of point, is there? It's all very, very sort of functional and they don't really go too much into that. But then when he abandons Reinhardt at the end, and uh, that's it. That's the next sort of flag with Max, isn't it? You wonder whether or not he was literally just turning his back on him and just saying, "Have at." <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, or, or whether whether it literally was just too late for Max to to, to be stopping, and, and it, that's very sort of debatable and borderline as to whether he just left Reinhardt to it. I th I think Nelson did a really good job with creating that atmosphere of ambiguity so yeah. as nigel said you're always questioning what's kind of going on you, you kind of with the crew themselves it's almost yeah. like you're one of these people that's trapped on the ship because i don't know about you but when i was a kid i wanted him to get off i just oh, wanted yeah. him off the sickness it's yeah i'm gonna say uh, that booth really managed to sort of amp up that sense of panic didn't he <laughs> yeah. in, you as, in you as a kid i think you know he, he was very good at sort of representing the part of you that wanted to be out of it yeah i, th I think i think nelson did a really good job with the direction on this and i don't think he's credit enough i mean mm. when you look at that at the, at the start of that fly by of the sickness together with that music it sets the tone perfectly from there it, oh, it, yeah. you know, you've got this haunted somber atmosphere and from then on it's hard to shake it yeah. uh, it's it's removed I'm, i mean let's be honest it, it was 1979 it's not the only movie out that year to feature a flyby of a ship yeah. so the fact that it holds its own and it just mm. it just puts you on edge that scene and regardless of how many times you've seen it even when i watched it even when i watched it just a couple of days ago yeah. When they're shining that spotlight and just passing over, together with that score, it's just, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that that kind of pulled pulled a lot of, a lot of quality out of the film. I mean, John Barry uh, doing the score, I think he, he did a remarkable job with that. You know, that was, that was just, the, the movie seemed to be really pitched well towards his, his style. As much as it was him bringing what he brought to it, you know what I mean. I think there was a, a real sort of yeah, you know, well, it got the the movie score before it with Moonraker, and then after the Black Hole with Raise the Titanic, and it's it's got that sort of that feel that, that just captures the the essence, the atmosphere of the film beautifully. I, I love Barry, and I love Barry's work on the Bond movies. Yeah, this it's it may be overused once or twice, but to me, Black Hole stands out as as one of Barry's best. To me, oh, I just yeah. I just think it's just utterly fantastic. Yeah, well, a lot of people were really clamouring for that soundtrack for the for the film because I mean, when it when it originally came out, Disney released the the album, which had what uh, five, six, seven, eight, about nine tracks on it, something like that. Mm. Uh, and it was very much sort of a, a truncated. It was, it was a, a nice, respectable release, but it, it was fairly truncated compared to what there was. And then Intrada went through a, a three-year process. Uh, the, there was a, a guy, I forget the guy's name now. Sorry, whoever it was that did it. Uh, but he, he spent three years trying to track down uh, the original masters to be able to produce a full version. Uh, of the score and Intrada did actually release it in 2012 I want to say one more sort of like 
attention to detail that every time I watch it, I always notice it. And it, it, I don't know why, but it just makes me smile. Is the, is the couple of things for Vincent's expression in his eyes, how that yeah. changes throughout the film, where the actual um, iris is in terms of the white of the eye changes, the actual shape changes. And there's a yeah. wonderful bit near the beginning where they're weightless and the Palomino is tumbling mm. and Vincent simply stays in the centre of the yeah. screen. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like he's kind of being used as a as a kind of a mechanism to help exactly. keep oriented. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful shot, and it's just a lovely little attention to detail. Yeah, that for me, always stands out every time I see it. I think, you know what, that's bloody brilliant. I yeah, that. That, if I was Holland, that would really help me in terms of a, yeah. <laughs> you know keeping orientation with which way the ship should actually technically perhaps yeah. be facing. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know. And it's How just a shot, yeah, of everything yeah. spinning around and him as a, as an audience, you're kind of just watching him and you're feeling a bit sorry for the crew as he kind of just <laughs> floating all over the place and he's just there waiting for them to sort things out. I, yeah. I just love that bit. Yeah, that was an well, interesting touch there. I mean, while we're on about, you know, little touches, it's it would be remiss if we didn't talk about the ending. So what's your general impression of how this thing ended? I'm gonna I'm gonna go to you first, uh, Sandy. I um I thought it was really interesting. A line that um a couple of lines that were almost, you know, throwaway in the beginning. Um, where Reinhardt I think it was Reinhardt talking about, you know, going into a black hole would be like going into the mind of God. Yeah. And then um another part another uh time later, Reinhardt's staring out at the black hole and he talks about the first cause you know what something caused this and what caused that cause um was such a cosmological argument by um aquinas and so i knew we were already going um in a spiritual direction and um i thought that the conceptualization of going into a black hole was pretty decent uh you know, it was obviously chaotic. It was very internalized, which was an interesting concept. And then you saw them, of course, being stretched and pulled um, by gravity, perhaps. I don't even know if that was on purpose, but um, that lines up with something very close to what Interstellar did. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, and then just, um, it became obvious that uh, Reinhardt, and Max in inside Maximilian or, or became Maximilian ended up in a hellscape while the rest of the crew was sort of um, carried out the other side of, of the black hole. So I just really thought that was, I thought that was very interesting and, and really the best part of, of the whole movie because you're waiting the entire time. I mean, you're, I remember y'all were talking about you're waiting to, for everybody, you wanted everybody to get off the ship I was waiting to go into the black hole. I was excited for that. <laughs> you just reminded me, Sandy, talking about that. I have to bring this up or Mike would never let me hear the end of it. Uh, <laughs> Maximilian was named, obviously, prior to them hiring Maximilian Shell. Mm. So it's kind of ironic that at the end, Reinhardt climbs 
basically into Maximilian's shell. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's for you, Mike. Because heaven knows he's probably fed up for editing all these people that actually like this movie. But, <laughs> yeah. What about uh, what about you guys, Gavin, Nigel? What uh, what did you think to the ending? Go on, Gavin. After you. Oh, blimey, man. All right. Uh, well, um, yeah, as a kid, I can remember it being very bizarre. Uh, one thing I always actually do remember, even as I was watching and processing it, I can remember there were, there, were, there were a few people in the cinema, but there was a kid in there who piped up, Mom, why has that man gone into that robot? And I will always remember him saying, saying <laughs> that. I always remember that as as a, a thing at that time, um, but even you know, yeah, watching it as a kid, I didn't really know what to make of it. I guess you know, part of me could take what was happening literally. Another part of me kind of saw because we we had that once we actually hit the the actual eye of the storm, uh, and it kind of looked back at what it looked like it was looking back at McRae. When looking into her eye, Um, a part of me wondered whether or not um, there was some kind of uh, crossover with what Dean Foster had been saying when he was he was taking the whole sort of Gestalt entity sort of approach. You know, when when we saw going into into McRae's eye like that and kind of reflecting back on it, I. uh, Part of me was wondering whether or not she was actually just kind of this was her perception of of what she was seeing, uh, and that kind of fed back from for me for what had happened throughout the sort of entirety of the film from her perspective because she is her, her connection with the Cygnus of being a father, and the fact that Reinhardt had effectively killed her killed her father. You know that's that's from what Bob was saying. Uh, I was I was kind of getting the feeling that this was perhaps uh, resolving some kind of inner conflict in herself. Perhaps you know the the journey through the black hole, if it had been a metaphysical experience rather than a literal one, that she was actually sort of witnessing Reinhardt's uh, kind of damnation, you know, in the, in with respect to how she might have actually felt about the the situation. In a sense, because they they went the metaphysical way, and a lot of people kind of criticise them for trying to riff off two thousand and one and doing it badly. What I would actually say is perhaps what they actually did was something fairly smart in that they they left it in such a state that you could actually reinforce your own interpretation on it, and and the fact that potentially you could take something that is how it is in a, a sort of a, an open-ended state and we count that back uh, upon the narrative that you've seen through the entire film it's it's a fascinating thing that you that you're actually able to sort of peel layers off like that so yeah. the ending i don't know it could be literally it could just be a metaphysical experience on the, on the part of mccray which also if that was the case would beg the question what did charlie dan and vincent see I mean, I, I think no matter how, you know, rushed it may have been or whether you personally like it or not, regardless, it sticks with you. Yeah. And it, it still unnerves me to, to no end. So what about you, Nigel? I remember you having a problem with the uh, with the ending. 
for yeah, a while. I'm just going to piss everyone off a bit, I think. And I and <laughs> just say, I really don't like the ending of this film. Um, I think it's, I, I watch this film relatively often, two, maybe two, three times a year, I probably see this film. Mm. I maybe only watch the ending once out of those three times. I kind of go, I mean, I'm watching a haunted house film and then suddenly it becomes, whoa, what the fuck's going off? <laughs> it's like, did, you, did you say you saw this as a kid? I did, yes. Yeah, you did. I did. But what did you make of the ending? I, I didn't. I just didn't compute it at all. Right. And right. I, I've returned to it many times and I've, I've watched the ending and mm. I love the soundtrack. I think it's quite pretty in parts. Every now and again, I kind of like to ponder, oh, what if this, what if that? Yeah. But I don't find it a particularly enjoyable ending at all. I, I, I literally almost feel like I've gone from film one and then it's suddenly become something, whoa, it's way different. Where have we gone here? Yeah, whoa. fair play. Fair and play. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of, I, for me, with the first three quarters of the film, I'm expecting them to to fly through this black hole into somewhere strange, mysterious, a lot of questions. It does that to 11. (laughs) Unless I'm in a really, I'm feeling really in the zone. I go, do you know what? I I can't think about this tonight. I've got work tomorrow. I've got this. (laughs) Weirdly enough, Nigel, my dad takes the exact same attitude. He'll, he'll sit through it, but at the end of it, when it's turned off, he'll, he'll just turn around and say, that is a very poor ending. Yeah. Yeah, it, it uh, it's interesting, isn't it? This is, this is how the critics bit it as well, isn't it? You know, it's... It, yeah. I mean, he got absolutely drubbed by the critics. Really had a, a kicking for it. Yeah. But, you know, a lot I'm of... Watching, every few times of, of going to it, I will sit... And I'll watch it and just go, right, what's it asking me? What what can I think about this? But in general, when I watch The Black Hole, I get to that end and I go, no, that's that's the wrong ending for this film. Yeah. For me personally. It, I'd, I'd prefer something a little bit different. Does every, anybody have any notes? I mean, again, uh, Speaking to Mike on this, he he hated it. He thought pe- people were staring in this because they thought the producer had kidnapped the dog or something, was holding it hostage. But I think they're really good in this. I think they all hold their own. I think uh, Yvette Mimia maybe could have been given a bit more decent material. But other than that, I think uh, I think they're they're really good. It's it's understated. Uh, for for me, it was my first exposure to a lot of these, you know, performers: Anthony Perkins, Ernest Borgnine, yeah. and uh, you know, even from Shell, who's uh, you know, he, he does have a tendency at times to chew the scenery, but for a lot of the time, he has that underlying kind of threat vibe going on. Yeah. I think they're all really good performances in this. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, one could say it's taking things a bit too far with slim pickings as Bob. I do like the little throwaway line that he was programmed in Houston, but oh, uh, I think Bob's a perfect. Uh, that's another thing that's kind of a, a bit of an odyssey, isn't it? Why uh, McDowell and Pickens never got the, the due credit on, on the film. Yeah. So what do you guys think to the, uh, the acting? I think the acting generally is great. I think it's, it's, 
for me, I love seeing a mature cast, seeing slightly older individuals being the heroes and villains and it not being a load of kids running around saving the universe. Yeah. They've got no experience. They've not got world-weary faces. I like the fact that there's certain interactions where, is it where Pison wants to rush outside to save Vincent, who's trying to fix a panel and he's in trouble? And it's yeah. almost like you expect the Star Wars moment where he goes outside and um, the captain turns around and says, state your post. And yeah. he says, hey, he's one of us. And, and he's like, absolutely he is. Yeah. And it's just a very kind of, actually, it kind of grounds it in a bit of realism, the, the age and the thing of the actors. But I think everyone puts on a, a really good job. I have, I have yeah. no qualms with any of the acting at all for this. Yeah, it was it was an interesting cast, wasn't it? I mean, you got you know, I think a lot of people were surprised surprised they ended up with Norman Bates in a Disney film at the time. You know, I think that kind of surprised people a bit. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, you do. We've got Ernest Borgnine who who came very much from the sort of disaster movies, didn't he? You know, as much yeah. as the Black Hole was a disaster production, he he came from the Poseidon adventure, didn't he? Um, so I mean, that was. It was good, good to see him, him coming in, into the part. You know, I mean, irrespective of how we feel about the the characters and how they may have been portrayed, I think, I think it it is a, a very good, a very good cast. You know, I was just you know, I was just about to say this is one of the films at a young age that solidified my love for Roddy McDowell. I just yeah. think the guy's just amazing. Yeah, that, well, that uh, that is a beautiful part of it, isn't it? You know, the voice acting that you get for something like that. I mean, yeah, you know, you've you've had your sort of Anthony Daniels doing the C three PO, but Vincent was a different kind of character, and Bob was a different kind of character, and and when you put Bob and Vincent together, they do actually seem like they pretty much come off the same sort of production line, like they've got the, the same kind of lineage, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. I think he must have Drew loved his script, Roddy McDowell. He must have looked at the oh, yeah. Say, yeah. oh, this is brilliant. I'm all over this. Yeah. You can you can kind of sense it in his performance, I think, that there is a genuine enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. I thought the acting was pretty good too. And um again, how they brought these characters to life without a much exposition. I guess a lot of that is um because of the dialogue, but I thought they all were well cast in each part they were supposed to play. And that that helped a lot um, with the acting being very believable. Um, Anthony Perkins uh, just being, uh, you know, willing to go where Reinhardt was going almost. Of course, there was a line he wouldn't cross, but, you know, he was willing to put his life um, on the line just for the sake of, of knowledge. Knowledge was like the most important thing to him. Yvette, like you said, she didn't have a whole lot of, of material to work with, but there was one scene I paid particular attention to uh, was when Max, um, excuse me, when uh, Vincent was telling her uh, through the ESP what had actually happened, that all of those robots were actually the crew. 
and oh, yeah. her face very subtle changes but she's also trying not to give it away <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that put her in a real predicament didn't it <laughs> that was pretty good that was pretty well acted it was very understated for what it could have been like there could have mm. been a gasp and a widening of the eyes that luckily went unnoticed but there wasn't there wasn't any of that i thought it was very like you said mature it was a very mature um way to handle it. and then even right after that and again this maybe goes back to the writing but when um he's asking her why she's so upset and and she tells him the reason is because um alex has decided to stay on the ship it's very believable too um whereas in some modern movies it, it doesn't come across as believable almost the way they deliver the line is almost a little bit over the top it's like well we already knew it wasn't true like why do you have to over overdo it you know yeah. Um, yeah so i thought that was all really good and then even um joseph bottoms as pizer you know just the young hot shot uh maybe a little bit of a know-it-all um and and very uh good there with the quips all the time um also thought he was pretty good so we're going to go through you know favorite character line and scene from today's movie so we'll go straight to uh, we'll go straight to the newbie with this one so gavin who was your favorite character in this and why that's a very interesting one uh the older me likes holland uh the older the older me will latch on to holland now simply for that for his sort of stoic sort of approach you know what i mean that he's he's kind of got this this very focused sort of attention which which for me kind of helps me focus in on the story and, and that that sort of mood uh when i was a kid i latched on to uh it was definitely between sort of charlie and vincent i enjoyed their relationship a lot but i enjoyed vincent's relationship a lot as well i felt like he was kind of a a nice sort of friendly handhold for kids through this yeah. whole thing you know where he did built up this relationship with bob and you know you had this sort of it was this sort of the the direct connection to the story in terms of what had happened the curiosity about it also yeah perhaps when i was younger it was either charlie or vincent for for character that i really sort of latched onto but the older me latches i thought on onto onto forster's character a bit more i think Nice one. I'm, I'm going to go with Vincent still, just because, mm. as I say, I just love Roddy McDowell. So I'm going to go to you, Nigel. Who's your uh, favourite character in this? I have to completely agree with Gavin. Uh, Holland is my favourite character. He's he's down to earth. He's very matter of fact. He gets stern when he needs to get stern. He has a, a certain glint in his eye a couple of times, but I just love how he's very measured in anything and everything that he does in this film. Yeah, yeah. When, it, when he went up against Reinhardt. Yeah, call him that. off. Call and him then, off. And, and, then he, and then he was like, you're on my ship, you ask. And he was like, yeah, yeah okay. Please. <laughs> Please. Call him off. <laughs> just, you know, just that was that was a beautiful yeah. moment like that. That, that really captured, captured Holland's essence, didn't it? Yeah, I think, he's, yeah. I think he's terrific in it. That's, that's my, my go-to character. Nice. And you, Sandy? Anyone standing out for you this week? Yeah, I really loved Pizer. <laughs> I really like um <laughs> yeah, hey, do you guys meet the goon squad? Just like all the all of his little one-liners and how he kind of kept things jovial. Um, how he had a lot of heart, 
you know, and in the beginning he wanted to go after Vincent and, you know, he did get put in his place. Like, don't mistake me not wanting to go after Vincent for me having a lack of heart, you know, as um, he was told, but, you know, he just kind of wore his heart on his sleeve and let it all out. So I, I really liked yeah. him the most. Cool. Yeah, that's that's what made me latch onto onto Pizer as a as a kid. I think he was he was the he was the Luke Skywalker in the film, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. that, that yeah. sort of focus for the kids, where yeah, you know, you're willing to get in there, all guns blazing, of course. You know, you end up with the horror aspect of it, and <laughs> you feel like Charlie's still sort of you know not really got out of his depth, but he's definitely the younger crew member, isn't he? Undeniably, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, right, we'll, we'll stick with you, Sandy. What's your favourite scene? Um, my favourite scene... I really was going to talk about that, um, looking down and seeing all just how, how tall that tower was and um, realising the vastness of the whole project, Black Hole, the whole thing, how how big it was i just really thought that was was really cool that that shot cool i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna have to go with that funeral scene and the one where he's exploring the crew quarters i just think it's it's unbelievably haunting and sets it up i just think it's so atmospheric so uh yeah even now having seen it numerous times i've got to go with that i love that little scene so uh what about you gav yeah, uh, well, the kid in me loves the meteor scene. We'll never get over that. How just how damn good that looked in the cinema. That was that blew me sideways. Uh, and the wonderful sort of cut and thrust and parry of the of the battle that they have with the robots in the in the garden. Uh, yeah. Those are those are the things that stick with me as a kid. As an adult, yes, I'll, uh, there's the funeral scene, and there's uh, there's the moment with Harry. In the garden. Oh, well. that's when another he, beautiful one. When, he, yeah. when he's when he's facing, when he's facing the, and that's that's a retrospective favorite as well. You know, because once you know what it is, what's going on, you know the the fact that he was so up close to this this poor lobotomized sod, whoever he was, or whoever she was behind the mask. Uh, yeah. That, that, um, and one other one other sequence that I will will point to as well the, the, with again two two actors who unfortunately had no credit in it whatsoever uh towards the end when Reinhardt's calling for help uh and you, the camera's looking at two crew members who are just sat there uh and uh, the, when I watch it I see them turn to him as if the as if they're kind of ignoring his cries for help as in yeah. you know, sort of a big screw you, you know, this is what you did to us. But then a, a part of me also looks at it and wonders whether the two of them are just kind of looking at each other as if to say, like, you know, let's end it here. And just, yeah. you know, which kind of, you know, that has that sort of gothic horror overtone again to me, you know. So I'd, I'll, I'll give an award to two two people who were never even credited for <laughs> just, just a nice silent performance there. You know, kind of drove to, to me as a kid it kind of drove home the, finally sort of the, you know the horror of what had happened to the to the crew so that that kind of somber the somber cool. scenes are the ones that stick with me as an adult now yeah cool and what about you Nigel? i think the one i mean there's a lot of scenes 
that you can sort of name in this film that really stand out. My my personal favourite is where Harry is kind of exploring um, and he, he kind of talks to Robbie, gets nothing back. And then as he glances around, he sees it limping out of the room. Yeah. From that yeah. moment on, that when I saw that, that was the, whoa, what what is going off here? So that that for me is my my sort of favourite scene that I always kind of recall when I think about this film. Cool. And uh, seeing as you brought it up, what's your favourite line? Uh, for me, I think it's 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 one of several Vincent quotes, but I think it's a wolf remains a wolf even if it has not eaten your sheep. Bastard! I was going to use that. Oh, yeah. uh, it's brilliant. Yeah. I'm, I'm in place of that one. I'm going to use. Vincent, were you programmed to bug me? No, sir. To educate you. So, what about you, Gav? Favorite line? Favorite lines. Ah, uh, well, I love, I love. The authorities would still consider that an act of piracy, Doctor. What would you have said, Mister Booth, if the authorities would have called back Columbus just before he discovered the new world? You wouldn't even exist. And he was going into justifying the ends of the means of of his mission. You know what I mean? Just pointing to the fact that you know the the idea of cutting the mission short was ultimately going to be the worst sort of travesty of you know, which kind of gives you the whole whole thing of Reinhardt's angle of of you know his whole motivation for what he's doing. You know, which was obviously the thing that tipped him over the edge and then <laughs> ended up lobotomizing all the crew. To do it, make damn sure that that mission did actually continue. Yeah. And and Alex was totally on for in for the ride the whole time until he found out that it was the crew. But it didn't matter to him that he disobeyed orders. Um, you know that oh, he was yeah. still there. None of that mattered to him. So he yeah. had the the knowledge first. You know how far are you willing to go for it? Yeah, that's yeah. a big thing. Yeah, that was a big snap for Alex when he came out of that, when he actually did, did discover that, because I think he, he was still thinking that there was going to be a robot underneath there, wasn't he, when he took the mask off, I think. What about you, Sandy? What's your favourite line? Uh, my favourite comes from Kate, actually, right after uh, Reinhardt asks for Kate's help and protection, looks scared. Um, after that, she says if they're... any justice at all the black hole will be your grave and i just think that was so brave and you know that it stung yeah and, yeah, and it's what he deserved yeah brilliantly yeah. underlined wasn't it there? yeah yeah well we'll give our uh, our final scores in a moment but if you've been with us for a while you'll know that before then uh, we'll come to you out there as you let us know in our audience participation section and we, we had some interesting and varied responses on this one. Maybe a little bit more divisive than our recent shows. And like last time, I'm again going over to Sandy for this section this week. I didn't think we were going to get a lot this time, but we were inundated in the end. Isn't that right, Sandy? Yeah, I was actually shocked too at all, especially me coming so late to the movie. Shocked at all the people who, who had seen it. I th really thought it was more obscure than that. Go for it, Sandy. Just you know, let us know what everyone thinks. All right. So coming from across all various social medias, I assume, from it's, Silver I, Screen Pod. Yeah, I think it's pretty much I think it's pretty much just Facebook on this one. We had wow. that many. 
Mark says, uh, I, uh, the black hole is an absolute masterpiece for children of the late seventies. Alien was a bit too R, although he did admit to watching that at a young age. Uh, but he brought his kids to the theater for the 40th anniversary showing. And um, he said that the black hole was more reality than Star Wars. Looking back, Star Wars is action with some sad parts. The black hole is a sad movie with some action, but more depth. Mm. And that's from Mark. Mark cool. with a C. Uh, Sean Northage uh, mentions he had the pop-up book. So, man, I bet he wishes he had held on to that. I bet that would be worth a pretty penny nowadays. Oh, I used to have that as well. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. Tim Knight said, I loved the film as a kid. Have watched it again a couple of times recently. It hasn't dated too much. So he agrees with you guys on that. Uh, fashion is neutral. Some effects are good. Others are poorly executed. The acting and actors hold up well. The storyline is good, but predictable. I think the introduction of ESP lets it down. The fact you can telepathically talk to a living robot, I feel, is a flaw in the believability of the science. The soundtrack is awesome. He said he had the LP and he would listen to it over and over. <laughs> uh, Sam says, I loved the movie as a kid and have watched it numerous times as an adult. I still wish there was a better ending. Left it wide open and there was never the sequel. Did they end up getting home in a parallel universe? Heaven? Also, like others have said, a precursor to this movie, for example, when Sickness was launched and how it got to this point would have been awesome. And that's from Sam Amy Vastano. Uh, Mark, another Mark with a C. Shuli, I think it is. It is great how some of the lines are famous quotes, like a pine can't hold a court. If it holds a pint, it is doing all it can. It's doing all it can from Margaret Dalen. And impossible is a word to be found only in the Dictionary of Fools from Napoleon. Um, these upstarts think I'm some old freak from Bob. Um, yeah, this movie was very quotable. Lots and lots of adages and, and quotable lines, really. Yeah. Uh, Nick Pepper says, uh, in 1979, I was a seven-year-old in Botswana, a TV-free and cinematic desert, I imagine. Uh, there was a cinnamon in uh, Gaborone, I think it's pronounced, which largely showed old releases and frequently managed to put the reels on in the wrong order. <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> can you imagine seeing this? That's a challenge watching the film, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, classic children's party option was to hire a projector and film from a hire shop. Wow. And by 1981, one of my friends secured the black hole for his birthday Ooh. party. Wow. So we wow. watched it on his living room wall, sitting cross-legged on the floor, high on sugar and buzzing off Coca-Cola. <laughs> that sounds like a very good time. That sounds like an excellent party. I like that. And I want to do that now. Yeah, let's do it now. <laughs> he says that's the only time he's seen it. My memory is almost completely limited to the name Maximilian, which was a threatening kind of robot. Um he said it was a googling it you know after the fact he says it was a stellar cast and some surprising uncredited voice actors um he says anthony per perkins and ernest bornine bornine are 
not exactly what I describe as obvious choices in an era when Star Wars was still causing ripples and catapulting younger, cooler num newcomers into superstardom. Yeah. Um, given the amount Disney invested in it, it feels like a misstep. Uh, Stephen Heimer says he loves the haunting soundtrack. Uh, Leif Guillen, uh, what I love about the Black Hole specifically was what it represented for Disney at the time. In the late 70s and early 80s, we had a lot of great sci-fi and sci-fi fantasy movies released. Oh, there it comes again, sci-fi fantasy. Yeah. Uh, but prior to that, there was a drought of sci-fi and particularly good sci-fi. Movies like Star Wars and Alien completely changed the landscape. In making The Black Hole, Disney tried to show us that they weren't afraid of the future movies, and they made an entertaining and somewhat dark movie that unapologetically stepped in that direction. Sure, it fell short for most adults, but for kids, it hit some good notes. So much so that those kids now represent adults with fond memories of the film, despite any shortcomings. The characters of the film were brought to life with great acting talent to the degree that those characters still live on in us audience members, long after most of the actors have passed. To me, that's what makes a great film, not how well it does at the box office. Definitely. Yeah, no. mm. uh, coming from our missing piece again today, Mike, he says, um, this is supposedly 2LDR, <laughs> and unusual his, movie. His first review was, was just one long stream of consciousness. <laughs> it wasn't a good one. <laughs> An unusual movie. It both looks like a Disney movie with wacky sidekicks and sets that would look better as cartoons and has some huge ideas that don't seem very Disney at all. Credit where it's due, the production values, model shots, and the main ideas are all hard to fault. But there is just so much cheesiness and camp from the inexplicable psychic woman to the bloody robots, bloody robots <laughs> that I would probably have loved as a kid, but now just make me groan so hard they can hear me in black hole purgatory. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> the actors mostly looked bored, angry, or confused, with the exception of Borning, who seemed thrilled to be there, bless him. Not a terrible movie. The bigger ideas and the ending in particular make an impact. But overall, I feel the best place to watch this would be an episode of MST3K. Oh, oh baby cakes. <laughs> but I actually think that would be fun. <laughs> um, Rachel Sophia says it has the God amongst men named Robert Forster in it. That is all we need to know. <laughs> also, the final scene is epic and she shows um just uh, a pic of maximilian tumbling into space into the hellscape where he lives out the rest of his days presumably mm -hmm. um rick cowling says never watched it always liked the designs though <laughs> and eric uh manktiklo loved it as a kid maximilian always terrified me and i had a soft spot for old bob sean brady says it's an odd film some very dark moments in a film with a couple of cute robots designed to appeal to kids floating about and that ending is wild fantastic model work and a great score but it has a very uneven tone like it doesn't know who its audience is uh, Suzanne Keen I remember even as a kid being disappointed that the plastic faced people were just his crew and not some alien species that he had joined with <laughs> Oh, she was a brave kid. 
I had seen enough Buck Rogers and Star Trek to know that it would be scarier to think that Maximilian Schell's character was being manipulated by aliens than it would be for him to be keeping his crew alive slash hostage. It had a lot of potential, and I can see how it had elements of Star Wars, but it drew heavily from Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, Glenn Brooks, a truly stunning film with a mind-bending ending that they could never pull off now. Just goes to show how dark Disney could get, given half a chance. And then lovely Adrian, she had a lot of thoughts on the movie. And uh, she also saw this in the theater as a kid when it was released. She said she was scared by the scene when Maximilian killed Alex. We stayed for the rest of the movie, but I remember the adults around me saying it was dark for Disney. <laughs> I liked it though, because it was dark. As I was re-watching to prepare for this, I can really see what intrigued me as a kid and why it is a popular sci-fi cult classic. I love the music, John Barry, and the special effects, of course. But the robots are actually still my favorite part of the film. I love Vincent and had somehow forgotten about Bob. The human characters, as I see them now, are really tropey, especially Kate. I mean, her role is simply to worry about her father, care about the male character's well-being, and be rescued. Alas, if this was supposed to be Disney's answer to Star Wars, our Kate is the antithesis of Leia. I like the campy suspense, though, especially the reveal that the crew were turned into smart zombies. And the limping one needs a hug. <laughs> <laughs> I distinctly remember thinking that at the end, Maximilian had saved the mean doctor from the dangers of space. But now I realize that scene was a writer's interpretation of eternal damnation. Ah, the innocence of youth. <laughs> In conclusion, I get why this movie isn't a popular one with normal people, <laughs> normal people. Uh, because it was dark, long, rambling at times and campy. But for us nerds, I feel like there are aspects of it that deserve appreciation. Go nerds! <laughs> that was a perfect one to end it on it was thank you sandy and uh thank you out there as as always to uh, everyone for being kind enough to share your thoughts with us we'd like this uh, to be as much your show as it's ours so we're always grateful for your interaction thank you for that and on that note now we know what you guys out there think it's time to see what our little band of survivors here think so as is customary we'll go around for everyone's final conclusion and score out of five so this time we will uh, we'll go to nigel first can you give me your thoughts and score out of five on this one mate great film ending doesn't quite do it for me amazing score great cast um one i return to many times I, I just genuinely thoroughly enjoy this film in terms of score probably getting towards a four out of five four out of five not bad not bad thanks buddy and uh we'll go to you next gavin final thoughts and score out of five ah final thoughts well it's always going to be one that's going to live with me it's been here for what 45 years almost now hasn't it <laughs> it's getting there so um yeah, it just left an absolute indelible mark on me. Um, there's no other way to describe it. It was it was a remarkable, remarkable experience. Something something that yeah, really really left a mark. I would have to give it. The kid in me would give it five out of five. I will give it four and a half out of five, just for uh, inflation. 
<laughs> nice. And what about you, Sandy? I get the feeling if anybody, you're going to be the uh, the lone voice of reason on this one. Uh, well, I can't. I don't know if that's for sure, but uh, I did like how thought provoking it was. And honestly, I didn't realize that before Interstellar, there was another film that actually went there as far as entering the black hole and trying to conceptualize what that would be like. For me, that's where the film gets its biggest marks. Uh, but overall, I would have to put it a little bit more on the average side, and I gave it three out of five. Yeah, that's fair enough. Oh, fair comment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I'll, I'll give mine and then, uh, yeah, apologies. I've got, this is such a weird one. I saw it at a young age and it's probably colored my personality ever since. It's another of those that I think is more impressive the more connection you have to it as a child. So I can fully accept that it's not for everyone. Mm -hmm. Technically, it may not be the best, but cinema has that capacity to grab you and give you an emotional response. And to me, this one is mood. It's now well over 40 years old, and while it's beginning to show its age, uh, it still has me under its spell. It takes the gung-ho Western space adventure of Star Wars and combines it with the deeper philosophical and metaphysical questions raised by harder sci-fi at the time. And to do it all in a Disney movie is simply mind-blowing. This one stays with you after you've watched it. I may have been highly unnerved in the cinema on my first viewing, but it didn't dampen my enthusiasm for it. Rather, it probably helped shape me. It's a milestone, maybe for the wrong reasons in some circles, but time has proven it to be a classic. And while some parts may be starting to look a little tattered around the edges, even now when I watch it, it takes me back and I'm a child watching this in the dark, equal parts excited and terrified. And I've given it four out of five. So, working that out between the four of us, it comes to a 3.8 out of 5. So, I think that's fairly respectable. Mm -hmm. That's not bad, that's at all. Especially right. averaging people who it does have a lot of meaning for and newer, people newly introduced to it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I know I say it every time, but... Uh, it's been great talking to you all, taking a trip down memory lane on this one. I think everyone out there, unless unless you might, regardless of their personal <laughs> feelings, can't deny uh, that the fact people are still talking about this uh, four decades later shows that despite its flaws, it still holds a special place in many hearts. So all that's left to do now is thank our guests for joining me today. So I'll, I'll kick off by thanking uh, my what what is turning out to rapidly be my semi-co-host at this point, Sandy. Thanks for jumping into the fray once more. I was so happy to. Thank you for inviting me again. Not a problem. I know that, uh, like me, you're pretty much a hermit when it comes to promotion and social media. But uh, just for my own curiosity, have, have you got any advancement on that thing you've been mulling over recently? Any updates? Uh, no, just that I told my daughter about it. So now she's going to hold me accountable. So I think I need to start looking into that a bit more. Oh, so, oh, that's I, a, that's I've actually had some thoughts of what it could turn into after that was done. Oh, nice. Well, when it does see the light of day, I'll, uh, I'll be there. I'm looking forward to it. I also want to give a big thank you to Nige for joining us on this one. You were reaching to talk about this one since uh, bringing it up way back in episode one. Did it scratch that itch, mate? It certainly did. I've loved it. Thank you very much for inviting me again. Not a problem. Well, again, thanks for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to promote while you're here? Any way you can be reached on social media or anything? No, not right now. Still oh. uh, 
work in progress. Fantastic. You're joining me and me and Sandy in the Hermits Club. Absolutely. Bloody lovely. <laughs> Together, but separate. <laughs> and finally, a big thank you to uh, the newest guest on Cult Classics, Gav. Thanks for joining us today, man. I really, uh, you know, I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, thanks a lot, guys. It's been uh, it's been real. Yeah, it's been really oh, good fantastic. to be able to have a chat about this. Yeah, oh, nice. Would you come back again, or have we uh, terrified you enough by this point? Oh no, no, it's not been terrified at all. As long as I've got some clue of a flashlight as to what I'm talking about, I'm nice. <laughs> well, it's more than us usually. <laughs> uh, while you're here, are uh, any of your own projects you'd like to promote? Uh, any pages, social media where listeners can find you? Uh, well, if anybody's interested in any of the creative stuff I do, I have a uh, channel called Kokorogenic Animations on YouTube. Uh, it's spelt K-O-K-O-R-O, Genic. Uh, I've, I've basically got a page there. I've got uh, you can find me on ArtStation and Behance as well. I've got my graphic art up there. Uh, those are my mainstays for anything that I've done. If anybody's curious to have a look at the uh, black hole animation as well, that's on the Kokoro Genic Animations YouTube channel. So you can have a dozy at that and give me some feedback on that. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, I mean, if you pass me the links after this, I'll make sure they go in the description and then uh, hopefully, you know, oh, we'll have some people come and check out your work. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to uh, have a chance to talk about this uh, film. It's only what forty-five years it's taken me to be able to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, anytime, mate. Well, uh, once more, I consider myself very lucky to uh, have you all here today. And if you out there listening would like to join us for an episode, then please do get in touch either in the comments section or on our social media. And that goes double if you're one of our listeners from Belgium. We need you to represent. Come on, people. Uh, seriously, though, we always appreciate new viewpoints. So if you want to, get in touch. And as always, if you like today's show, then please hit like, subscribe, you know, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a tip on our coffee account. Uh, again, the link is below. We don't do this because it's easy. We just do it because we thought it would be easy. Uh, while we're on the subject of links, I do, again, want to give a very special thanks to Kenny Denton for allowing us to use the Nostromo version of the Black Hole theme. Older folks like myself will remember that it was a very popular uh, thing uh, to back then to have dance versions of popular movie themes. And, you know, back then, dance in that case meant disco. So I was both astonished and pleasantly surprised when I uh, discovered this one. So if you want to read more about Kenny and Nostromo, please check out the links in the description. Now, we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. Fear not, though, you don't have to miss us too much. In the meantime, we'll be on our sister show, the Star Trek Hit or Miss podcast, and not only will we be taking a look at some animated episodes over the next two weeks, but we'll also be dissecting the uh, fantastic Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I believe you're joining us on that one too, Sandy. Is that right? That is correct. Brilliant. So, yeah, uh, why not join us for that one? If you're missing your fix, we'll hopefully see you there. Uh, until then, take care, everyone. And always remember, you can't beat perfection. We're the best. You have been listening to the Silver Screen Podcast, hosted by DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Behind the scenes sections and additional material produced by DK. Music by Kenny Denton and Nostromo. Additional sound production by Timeless Journey.
Follow the podcast on Instagram at Silver Screen Podcast or look for the Silver Screen Podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen, Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast Production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.